If you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is out of Ephesians chapter four. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Thank you, Rachel. You do such a great job leading a Christian community school and a joy to get to know you in our local theologian fellowship as well. Thanks so much, sister. What is the church? I'd say maybe nobody's ever asked you that, but by virtue of being here at some level, I think it's a good question. Say, how would you answer that? Somebody came up to you in the street, said, you know, I know you are over at that Providence Church. Uh, tell me what it is to be in a church. I think most people, you know, confronted with that question, or you could turn it around, say, if you went out in the street and just said, what, what is the church? I think most, most people, their default mode would be it's a building that has a cross on it. Uh, it's 35295 Detroit Road. That, that's the church. When people say they participate in it, they're talking about the, the premises uh, that, that's kind of marked off for the God stuff. Others, you know, if you say beyond the building, I think they'd go to... Um, somewhat of a, of a method of doing things. So take a couple of word images here. How many would see the church as a hospital? Um, it's the place where you go if you're having a tough time, if you're wounded and uh, feeling down about yourself. Then you go to a church. It's, it's really needs-based. If you have a need, they, they meet the need. What about another image for you? Is it like a university? Well, there's definitely some, you know, some lesson coming across, so you need your dose, you're out in the world, you say, well, I go on Sunday mornings as often as I feel like it, and I kind of get my dose on, on that particular topic. Um, it's very much uh, about information transfer, it's a university. Maybe a few less felicitous now, so I think others still, not a hospital or a university, they might see it as a, a club uh, with low admission standards. <laughs> Um, it's the place I go that I can meet people. I'm a little bit lonely. Um, I, I can't go to the other club, so this is my club, and I take it as, a, you know, I need my dose of, of social interaction. Or fourthly, about a theater. A lot of church, they, it's a pretty good show up there. I mean, I, I like the music. Helps me feel a little bit better about myself. Pastor, you know, always gives me a couple of good nuggets on how I can be better in the workplace. Yeah, the church is like a theater. I hope you see that all those, while maybe elements of truth in each, say, of course, we're a place for those who are hurting and wounded. Of course, there is deep truths that are taught here on a regular basis. Of course, we're for social interaction. We certainly don't aim to be boring. Say, elements of that, all true. But all of them, I would say, would be a very shallow view of the church as God has called it to be. I would challenge us to think about the church, meaning called out ones, that is the assembly, as God's people on mission. It's God's people moving towards the end that he wants us moving. Uh, so again, not just the building, although I do think buildings are important, and not just those elements, but God's people called together, those who've recognized Jesus as King, Lord, and Savior, coming together, doing God's work. One definition I very much have liked of late, it's, it's rather lofty if you think about it. They say the local church is like an embassy of heaven. So that's fairly intimidating. So you're in a foreign country, and you walk into the U.S. Embassy. When you cross through those gates, right, you're on U.S. ground. Something happens when you pass through. You say, oh, it feels different here uh, than the outside country. Is a local church like that? God's people come together, 
let's say a non-believer comes in our midst among God's people, should they say, it feels different here. That there's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things seem to be abounding among these people and it's as if when I'm in their domain, there's a little slice, as imperfect as it is, a little slice of heaven, a little slice of those who called on Jesus as king. Say, that's the local church. Now, friends, I don't know any better than you do. You say, look at the long history in which we find ourselves and why you're in Northeast Ohio and I'm in Northeast Ohio, but let's face it, members of this church and probably many attenders as well, you find yourself on the west side of Cleveland. You find yourself as one who acknowledges Jesus as Lord, that he's the one who reconciles you to God, and you've been brought into this covenant relationship with other Christians. You say, well, this is the church family. This is God's plan. So we want to get it right. What is the church? God's people doing his work, staying on mission. So a little bit different today, and the reason is as we head into the fall, partly where we're at in the calendar year, partly to see what God is doing in our church as we interpret the times, but I thought today we would really lock in on this to say what is the mission of the local church? How can everybody clearly see, yes, this is what we ought to be doing, and each one of us, insofar as God has brought us together to participate with our time, talents, and treasure, to build each other up in love and to full Christian maturity, as Ephesians 4 says. So let's now turn, I'll look at that second, that very famous uh, second Great Commission reading that Rachel read for us from Matthew 28. So Jesus is resurrected, he's about to ascend into heaven, and he gives a final charge to his disciples. This is verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And Jesus says, I will never leave those who are mine. All authority is mine, and I'll never leave you. Here's the mission. Now, any Greek grammarian, when you look at that great commission, will tell you the way that it comes into English, that there's, it's very clear what the, the, the thrust of the action, like what's the, where does Jesus, what's the emphasis there? That the go is actually a participle. It's kind of, you know, as you're going. We might say, as my followers go through life. And then you get the verb, the real punch of this is what? Make disciples. That's the punch. As my followers go, you're to make disciples. The central mission of the followers of Jesus. Now that word I just said, you say, okay, what's a disciple? Um, at its root, again, it's a, a learner. There's always, we need to know what Jesus said and did and how it works, i.e. our catechism. We definitely have a knowledge component. But to keep it even more simple, right before our church family, what's a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Jesus. It's one who follows Jesus, that he's my Lord and Savior, and in my life, I follow him. Now, when you came in, as you have Sunday after Sunday, unless you're a visitor, you'll see that big medallion over there. You go to our website. What do you see? That big medallion, what's it say? Following Christ together. What do we do at Providence Church? We're in the business of following Jesus together, and in so doing, encourage others to follow him as well. That's the central thrust. So three moves today, kind of big overview as we head into the fall and uh, be prepared to move forward. Uh, first point I, I will make here, Jesus calls people to follow him. Let's just have a look at some of these famous instances. So John chapter 10, as Jesus is the good shepherd, you, you know this, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. 
What I really like about this idea of following is you can see as we talk about regularly that the Christian life is not this static, boring thing that is shelved. It's impossible to see it that way. You say, what is, what is following? By nature, following is dynamic, that there's movement uh, to what we're doing. We're following Jesus into our time and our place to do his work. It's not something, well, I've done that back in the day. Now I'm good, uh, but we're going somewhere. We're going where Jesus takes us, that is to make more disciples. Those of you, you know, you read the book of Acts, you'll know uh, when a person became a Christian, they became followers of what was just called the way. It's very interesting, isn't it? That it's a path and a movement that Jesus calls people, say, when they hear me, as God does a work in their life, they then follow me. How about, again, beginning of John's gospel, two disciples heard and they followed Jesus. They hear and they follow. So that raises another question. You know, you're thinking about the DNA of our church. We have a saying here, nothing competes with scripture. So everything that you've done, I hope, whether you're in a small group or men's ministry or women's ministry, I love how so many people come the first time, they put their children in their back and they say, you know what I love about Providence Church? You're not babysitting back there, but you're teaching the children the truths about God and what he's done in Jesus that we teach scripture because fundamentally God has spoken through his word, right? We all want to know that question to say, how do I know what God wants me to do? What's his will? I'm not hearing from God. Well, God has spoken to his people through his word. And if his word is the means by which he allows more people to follow him and indeed will keep us on track for following him together, then by all means, scripture must be primary. I think for all of us who are Christians in the room, you say that is, I, I think you'd say that is how it worked for me. I was out doing my own thing and living for myself and somebody opened up the truths of what God has done in Jesus. In other words, they opened up the truth of God's word. They say, you know what? It is a lonely and dark world and we tend to live from ourselves and there's a lot that we can do to damage. But you know what? There's good news. God's put forth Jesus and you can turn from the world to him and be saved and made right with God and sent on mission. And, and that happened, right? Every Christian in the room say, yes, somebody spoke to me. I heard the word. God did a work in my life, and I followed Jesus. Jesus calls people to follow him. Now, maybe you're here today, and you say, well, you know, yeah, well, what, what, what am I doing? Or, I've, you know, where's the direction? Say, well, in God's word, he's told us the great truth the good news that he's put forth Jesus. I like the way Denny uh, recently has taught me to say, you know, the gospel is not good advice, uh, it's good news. That ultimately we possess this good news that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that we can turn and follow him on the way and serve his purpose. So you see, Jesus calls people to hear the truth about God and to follow him. Those of us who are Christians, we say, yeah, that's it. We're following Christ together. We've heard and we're responding. Now, a bit more challenging. This is where uh, American evangelicalism, I think particularly in the last 40 years or so, uh, could have done a bit more work. We've not accurately communicated the cost of this. So you could say, well, yeah, it's a pretty good deal. I mean, Jesus, you know, who wouldn't like him? I, yeah, I'll, I'll follow. But there's no real commitment to following through on what that entails for many people, right? That this is what Bonhoeffer long before in the 1930s would have called cheap grace. You know, it's as if you know, come follow me and then that's it. But if you notice the other context where Jesus is talking about following him, listen to some of them. So the rich young ruler, you know this story? 
how do, he says, how do I get right with God? How do, how, do I, how do I make it in? If you would be perfect, Jesus says, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. A challenging passage. We've been talking a lot about stewardship uh, the last few weeks in Luke's gospel. What's happening? Say, this young guy had a real attachment. His stuff wasn't the problem, right? The, the money and the stuff is not the problem. The problem is the disposition of the heart and the mind towards those things, that we find security in them. We find our identity in them. And here's a young guy, he's very uh, wrapped up in his stuff. And Jesus says, when you follow me, there's a different mentality towards our stuff, that Christians are those, say, when we become Christians, that the way that I treat and interact with people, the way that I use my body, the way that I think of the material that I have, that that changes by virtue of the fact that there's a higher calling on my life that is to serve Jesus and uh, to go with him. Take, for example, too, this um, passage from Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So what's he saying? Say, do you, do you know what you've signed up for? I'm glad you want to follow, but do you realize there's elements of that that is a tough road? To, under, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So once again, to say, here I am, I'm ready to follow. Let me just take care of my other worldly affairs. And when I get to you, Jesus, then I'm ready to go. Jesus says, no. The following will, to go back to last week, reorder our loves and lead to loyalty the um, conflicts of loyalty. Finally, I will follow you, Lord. This is yet another, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The point being is that it seems every time Jesus says, come follow me, that it's not just that initial, I'm gonna follow, but that there's a commitment to really follow Jesus, knowing that there are some tough things and that it's going to, what I would say, have an authoritative, a functional authority over our lives. It's not just theoretical. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus without it ordering my life in some way, but there's a real authority that he calls me to follow him, that I have a different mentality to people, to my body, to my work, and everything. Again, those things are not the problem, but it's a pivot to say, okay, I want to use all of that to serve the king. How about this one? Um, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Says this to Peter and Andrew. They're of course fishermen. So come follow me, and then I'm gonna change your life and send you back out. So you go back to that image of the church, you know, hospital, university, theater, club. You say there's something here that's much more like a, uh, the, the weekly gathering is like a, you know, a, um, a launch pad or something, you know, an aircraft carrier that everybody comes in, gets recharged, and then sent back out. Followers of Jesus, here we go, built up in faith, and back out to be fishers of men. So think, too, what's entailed in that. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. How many jobs do we have in the room? Say, so I love the local church. Businessmen and teachers and lawyers, full-time moms. We got all kinds of great jobs. But those jobs actually become the arena to do our first job, to be fishers of people. 
that their domains, their important domains, our jobs are important. We do those jobs with excellence, but they become the arena to do our real work, which is to follow Jesus and encourage others to follow him too. So we become fishers of people when we follow Jesus. Now, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So here's a connection between following Jesus and serving Jesus or taking his posture as a servant. I do pray, and very commendable job as a church family. I think you serve well. But say, why do we make a big deal about serving? Because part of what it means to follow Jesus is to take a posture of not lording things over people, but to serve them out of love because that's what Jesus taught us. Say, I could keep going. I'll just say, say one more in this area, right? If anyone could come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus said, when we commit to following Jesus, wonderful thing, but it will bring us to a crossroads and we have to think carefully about what it means in our time and our place if we're really going to follow him together. And again, Lord willing, I believe those of us who are members say we're on board with this, we're following Christ uh, no matter what it entails. Little sidebar here, I thought about whether to say this because I, I, I want to be delicate my first son's name is Graham, as in Billy Graham, named after the great evangelist, a great hero of mine, a wonderful preacher, and many, even in our congregation, I, I would say, may, maybe came to faith through Billy Graham's preaching his itinerant ministry. So why do I bring that up? Some people will say, Shaw, why don't you do an altar call? Uh, for those who are new, say an altar call is when the preacher would communicate what God has done in Jesus, that we should turn from our sins put our faith in Jesus, and then they'd say something to the effect, if anyone has done that just now, will you please come forward uh, to show the church family that you've surrendered your life to Jesus? Now, what I like about that, there's a lot I like about the altar call. For instance, it calls for decision, uh, that it takes some courage. It just goes with what we're saying about, you know, Jesus, following Jesus is a a serious thing, and if you can't show it to your church family, how will you say it to the world? So there's real value in that. Why, what makes me nervous about it is that I, I fear that sometimes then I'm not able to communicate the cost of following Jesus. So many, I remember my old barber who I really loved, but by, by no means a Christian, we're talking about these things, and he said, oh yeah, 1994, you know, I, I went up to, you know, when Billy Graham was preaching, and it, it clearly hadn't thought about it in 28 years. Um, so that's why, if you're wondering, say, why doesn't he do that? because it's taking this idea of following Jesus. Uh, that's what we're called to do, to make disciples, and then to say there's a real cost. It's a long term. I'm, I'm walking this road. It's going to alter. It's going to really change my life. But in the end, that is the best of all lives to live. So friends, that's the point. Jesus calls people to follow him, to turn uh, from ourselves, and to, to, to go with him. Hence why we say following Christ together. One other point on this. Do you notice at the end of John's gospel, uh, this is after Peter fails. Uh, wonderful that God, and, and I think a great gift to the church, preserves Peter's failures, the chief apostle. Um, there's a little bit of Peter in every person, I think. And after he fails on this, I think, way bigger arena than the Super Bowl or anything like that. Why? Because he's in every Bible and every, in every nation of the world. Peter's. So how does Peter get back? And what does Jesus say? He says, follow me. Peter, follow me. I've talked to enough of you throughout the week, every week. You're raised in a Christian home. 
your parents taught you about Jesus, going strong, and somewhere there, you lost your way. And you're entertaining these things again for the first time in a long time, and maybe there's an element of you that says, you know what, I've really gotten off track, and I'm hurting, and I'm in a tough place. And you're saying, what in the world do I do? Wonderful news. Follow Jesus. Start following Jesus. Go on mission with him. Make disciples. Listen to the calling on your life. That's how Peter gets right. That's how uh, we get right when we fail. Follow Jesus. So all people who hear the word of God, God does a work in their life. They follow Jesus. When we follow Jesus, it orients our entire existence so that we might do his mission. Secondly, with that, we'll say this. We must watch then for missional drift. Every church should watch for missional drift. It happens everywhere. Take, for example, Heinen's allowing you to take your carts outside now. It's, uh, in my view, great lapse of judgment. And uh, so that's a tough one for me. Uh, missional drift. How many institutions, you read their mottos, you notice how many of them are from the Bible? My alma mater, Oxford University, every crest, Dominus, Illuminati, Omea, the Lord is my light. Guess what? <laughs> Not happening in the hearts of many people there. Many institutions start out saying, this is what we're about. And as the forces of society begin to push and pull and the pressure goes up, say that Jesus bit is pushed to the outside. I remember years ago, my, my sister lived in Raleigh, would go to Duke's campus, very pretty, enjoyed it. And I remember the first time I went, there was a stone in the ground right in front of the chapel, right on the main quad. This university was founded to build up young men and women into you know, fully mature followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it was a thoroughly committed Christian statement. And I'd go there and I'd like to look at the plaque and look at the campus, but yes, one year I went back and guess what? Plaque's gone. Black's not there anymore. Every Christian, every church, every institution, because of the historical exigencies of pressure and, you know, the culture has to watch out for losing the central mission of the church to follow Jesus and to encourage others to follow Jesus. So the writer of the Hebrews, 2,000 years ago, he, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Great word there, drift, right? Nobody wakes up and says, well, I'm going to fundamentally change the DNA of the church or the home or the inside. Very few people do it that way, but it's a slow drift off into the periphery, right? And as you've heard so many times, it's not that people come up with a, a very bad, you know, evil idea that takes them off mission. Oftentimes, it's a very good thing, but that good thing then takes the primary place of being about the Lord's work. So I ask you today, who's responsible for keeping Providence Church on mission of making disciples? At one level, I think the Bible would say, in default, oh, well, the, the teaching pastors, and there's six of us, say that's definitely true. James chapter 3, not many of you should teach because you're going to be judged very seriously. <laughs> Pastors will be judged seriously. You're off doing your own thing, getting too far away from Scripture. Not good. Teaching pastors, 
Got to keep us locked in. We follow Jesus here. We make disciples. That's what we do. Build each other up in love. Glorify God. Those kinds of things. That's where we're going. That's where the train's going. That's where we're always going to be going. Secondly, I, you know, we do have a plurality of elders. I think that's God and his wisdom. Steve Trenta, excellent board chair, say God's given us the gift of a plurality of elders that as we come together, say, are we on mission? That's a great thing. Are we, are we following what Jesus wants us to do? So the elders, Acts chapter 20, Paul charges the Ephesians letter, look after the flock with which you've been entrusted because it's been bought with the very blood of Jesus. It's serious business. But thirdly, and this is really what I want to say today, every member of our church is responsible for the direction and teaching of our church. That if you're a member of our church, that's an office of the church. Well, we have pastor, elder, we have deacon. We say those are the church offices. But when you become a member of Providence Church, you say you read our membership covenant, you become an office holder. And in so doing, we're always building each other up in the biblical truth of what the church is about. So you can think of those Bereans, right? That there's a sermon going on. And those Bereans, what did they do? They checked the Hebrew Bible to make sure everything the speaker was saying uh, was on point. Say, that is what the Bible says. That is what we ought to be doing. That is how we ought to be building each other up, that it's the work of the people. As I never tire of saying, right, sermon, not one guy's thoughts, but rather the church being brought under the word of God so that we might better, so that we might better obey it. In this sense, the Reformation is not just the historical event of 1517, Luther and the Theses, as indebted as we are to Luther and those reform, the magisterial reformers. I could say that the church is always reforming. The church is always thinking about, okay, here's the way the culture's going. Here's this new thing coming across our screens. Here are the new pastoral concerns. Guess what? We're all gonna continuously reform the church to God's spoken word in scripture. We're bringing it back, shaping it, thinking of the way forward, staying on point. So the church is always reforming. And you as church office holders, you members, your pastor, your pastors will not fire you from your office. You play an important role staying on mission. So point number one, Jesus calls people to follow him. This following places a command on our life. There is a cost, but we submit that it is worth it. It is the only way uh, by which to go forward. So Jesus calls people to follow him. We all must watch for missional drift, keep the primary thing the primary thing, and not allow secondary good things to become the primary thing because then we're, we're off track. Lastly, and I've made up a word here in the notes, that we want to behavioralize the mission. How do we then act in accordance with this to make disciples? And by the way, Alexander Haig, you know, he too made up a word about Reagan. He said, you know, um, Reagan had this ability, he, he tangibilitated an idea that Reagan, uh, unlike Carter, was able to say, here's the idea and this is what it looks like. So if you ever read his speeches, they're really replete with uh, different word pictures to say, that's what we wanna do. How then, okay, here we are, we come on a Sunday, Let, let's, let's put it into movement. And, and if, you, if I may, you've seen this a year ago if you've been coming, Dr. Kilgore, thank you very much. Uh, what we would simply call you know, the six pillars of following Christ together. So walk, walk through this. Notice the base of the pillars. The base of the pillars is this word repentance. It's a distinctly Christian word. Um, it means turning. Uh, it means uh, making a move away from ourselves and the world to following Jesus. Everything's built on that. Say, we live in a time where there are many uh, phony, phony Christians, uh, nominal Christians, as we looked at last week, 
So the base of everything that we do is to say we're really about uh, taking this idea of, of following Christ seriously. And that each day when we wake up, we would say, well, there's a lot of things on my calendar today. There's a lot I could do. Uh, but today, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm doing mission for him. And I turn to Jesus afresh. You know, surrender, surrender is always a day old, ladies and gentlemen. And so that is why the base of all we do, that we really are committed to Jesus and his word and doing his mission, the base of all that we do. Secondly, one that we pastors have been thinking a lot about, but corporate worship. In 2020, uh, many churches went remote, as ours did. So the question arises, why can't we just keep it going that way? A lot of businesses do, saying, eh, convenient for you, you know, I can be on demand or not on demand. You know, you turn me off. I say something you don't like, you turn, you know, say, what, why not? Can the church just go all remote? I say that, that would be a really hard thing based on something like Ephesians 4, which I know we don't have time to go in today, but Ephesians 4 is probably the best, if I had to pick one chapter in Holy Writ about how the church should function and what we should be doing, you're gonna notice all these one another's and serving each other, be kind to one another, forgiving one another, bearing each other's uh, you know, difficult things. How am I gonna do that if I don't know you? Uh, how can we forgive one another if there's never any room for offense because I just stay on my couch. How can we trust each other if I'm never vulnerable? I, you, you get, so corporate worship, the people of God assembling to bring him glory that we might build each other up in love and dare I say again, kind of empty ourselves for the sake of the other is really dependent on the fact that, that we must come together. People say to me all the time, well, you know, I can be saved without coming to church. I say, yeah, that's probably true. Salvation is based on trusting in Jesus alone. But I think it's really hard to obey the Bible without being involved in some level of the church family because of passages like this. How am I using the gifts that God's given me to build up other Christians? How am I doing that? How am I practicing the one another? So we come together regularly. How about singing? I talk to people in our stream of belief, and I ask them, say, what do you think's happening during the worship time of church? They say, well, you know, the, the people up front, they're playing, and I, I just, you know, kind of watch them. It's a nice, nice show. I say, that's not why we sing. The church sings because it's all the people of God coming together, declaring his truth in unison. You'll notice at our church, Jim and the team do a wonderful job. What's going on up here is to facilitate the singing of the people. The main instrument in the church should be the voices of the people. When the instruments drown out the voices of the people, you say all of a sudden then you have six people doing it for the others and you're going down that path. So no, it's about corporate singing. And you're combining these two things, you know, weekly gatherings with singing. Do you realize that, that the opportunity we have there alone? How much, you say, well, hundreds of people come together on the Lord's Day every single week without fail. They come together, they love each other, and you know what they do? You know, you're an outsider coming in. They start glorifying God in unison and in song. That's not happening anywhere else. Say corporate singing. I remember as a young undergraduate in England. I walked into St. Ebb's Church. It's a very old church. There's an arch on St. Ebb's that uh, there's an 11th century document that calls the arch on St. Ebb's very old, whatever that means. So a very old church. And I walk in, and those 20-year-old Oxford undergraduates, 
I look at my little bulletin, first hymn, End Can It Be by Charles Wesley. And those undergraduates, very simple instrumentation, they opened their pipes and they sang and they, they, they let it rip. And that music began to bounce off those stone walls and you say it's very hard not to be moved at some level by that. Say, so you don't think you're a good singer. And you're back there, you say, well, I don't sing because I, you know, I just can't even hit the right notes. I think you should sing all the louder because then the person in front of you is going to have more confidence and they'll sing louder. <laughs> so if we go down the path of saying, well, this is somehow about the sound of my voice or about the instruments, it's the work of the people. God's people sing. Uh, we sing together. It's not about the quality. It's about the glory of God and about doing life together, about worshiping God together. So corporate worship. How about practicing personal devotions? In a few weeks, in addition to the catechism, we're going to, together as a church family, read small sections of 1 Thessalonians together, that we're going to read the Bible together. So we're in the Word, and we're praying. How about small groups? You can't know everyone at a church the same level. So you look at a room, I, I, I can't know everyone deeply, but you can know some really deeply. You can have really good friendships. There's nothing more rewarding in the ministry than seeing two strangers form very deep Christ-centered friendships. People today, again, look, look at the comparative advantage again for the church. People longing for real community. Is there a place that I can go where there's healthy interaction, where I'm talking about something other than weather? And I mean, really talking about life and serious things and by, by all means, a group of people trying to love in the name of Christ. Is there a place like that? Yeah, yeah old blueprint, the local church. I've been reading this book by a man named Spenner who lived uh, 350 years ago but is often credited with being the architect of small groups and I couldn't say this any better myself. Here's what he writes. It is certain in any case that we preachers cannot instruct the people from our pulpits as much as is needful unless other persons in the congregation who by God's grace have a superior knowledge of Christianity take the pains by virtue of their universal Christian priesthood to work with and under us to correct and reform as much as in their neighbors as they are able according to the measure of their gifts. That's a beautiful image of Ephesians 4. The pastor is equipping the people to do the work of the ministry. So we just disciple, is the only discipleship happening for a 25-minute sermon? No, God's assembled us, and those of you with a superior knowledge of the faith are called upon to build each other up in love so that we might go forward as a church family. There's a small groups. Be a part of a small group. Love each other. Use your gifts. Now's the time. Serving one another. How that binds us together. Loads of places to serve children's ministry, greeting ministry, coffee, in any of the sub-ministries. How about the local missions partners, like Building Hope in the City? Say, I would just pick one, one area to serve and say, I want to be involved and build each other up and know my church family. The last two, again, sermons in themselves, but will I say the name of Jesus to people who don't know him? And will there be a culture around here of intentional relationship about multiplying followers of Jesus? Those who have been coming to Providence a long time, you might be thinking, you know, now's the time for me to introduce myself to a young man, a woman, young lady, and really start to meet them and know them and encourage a lifestyle of obeying Jesus. Friends, I end this. So once again, Jesus calls us to follow him. Disciples make disciples. Disciples are followers. What are we doing? We're following Christ together. That's what we're about, making disciples, following Christ together. We're always on guard against missional drift, and we're always reforming the church back to the Christian ideal. 
How do we behavioralize the mission? Here are some good steps, right? It's scripture brought down to say, okay, this is really how I'm gonna get involved uh, to be used by God to his glory. So we behavioralize that mission. Friends, what a time to be the church. I I hope you're very excited about being a Christ follower in these times. I hope you see the, to use a sports illustration, the, the gaping hole in the defense. And uh, we've got a wonderful opportunity to serve King Jesus. Many are hungering, uh, and may he use our church and our fellowship to stay on point. So I'll pray, and we'll sing our final hymn. Lord, thank you again for making our calling in you not a static mental commitment, but rather this all-encompassing call on our lives to follow you down the way. Lord, help us to see today that we want to be encouraging each other towards greater maturity, edification, building each other up in the faith, and as we follow you together, that others would follow you as they hear what you've done in Jesus. And Lord, we do pray that you would guard us against any missional drift that all the good things we can be doing wouldn't cloud out the primary calling of serving King Jesus, showing them, um, showing the world what it is to have Jesus as King. And Lord, as we go forward into this season, wherever different folks are, I know some today, they're just really overburdened, the thought of doing one other thing. So that's okay. I pray you'd give them rest, that the church family would be an encouragement to them. But others, they're ready to go, and that you would set them in just the right place in this local time, in this place. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you afresh in this upcoming exciting season. Help us to be rowing together for your glory as we would be humble underneath you and exalt the Savior, promote a lifestyle that honors him. In Jesus' name, amen.